You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me, and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Before we get into today's episode, I'm going to do a weird thing and put in a disclaimer. I know that I named this episode Shame and Autism. And I did that because I wanted people dealing with shame to be able to see the title and go, ah, I can listen to this episode that will help me process shame. And I also did it because... I want people who have autism to see the title of this episode and go, hey, here's an episode about autism. This episode might be useful for me. What I do not want to do is imply that autism is in any way, shape, or form shameful, because it's not. There is nothing shameful about having autism. I think my, my emotion of shame is valid in so much as it makes sense given all the thoughts I'm having, my history, society at large, all of this stuff. It makes sense that I would feel shame. And I don't think the shame is justified. Like, I don't think there's anything shameful about having autism. There is nothing inherently bad. There is nothing inherently wrong about it. People who have it are not bad or wrong. I was experiencing shame because I was having thoughts about my autism, and those thoughts were triggering shame. And again, those thoughts are valid in so much as they come from somewhere and are caused by something, and they don't necessarily point to the truth of my situation. Like, I've used this stupid analogy many times before, like, I can have the thought I'm a pink elephant, and it is true that I had that thought, and that thought does not point to the truth. It is not true that I am a pink elephant. So I can have the thought that there is something shameful about having autism, and it is not the truth that there is something shameful about autism. It is the truth that I'm having the thought, and the thought doesn't point to the truth. Just to clarify that, I think that's vitally important. So part of the reason I'm processing the shame or will be processing my shame in the next episode is because I'm aware that my shame is unjustified, like it is not in line with the facts. Okay, now I'm going to do my normal introduction to this episode. Here we go. Welcome, welcome. I am still sick, so pardon my voice. It's not 100%, but we're going to keep on trucking. So in addition to not knowing how to close out my episodes, I also really don't know how to start my episodes. Let's start off with a shout out to my Patreon patrons. How about that? Uh, a huge thank you to both Ruth and Anne for supporting me on Patreon. If you, dear listener, are interested in supporting me as well, the link is in the description. It makes a huge difference in my ability to host this podcast so that you can actually find it and listen to it. 
there's a few different support levels starting at $3 and going all the way up to $20. So check it out. Alrighty, let's talk about today's episode. If you are new to the podcast, first off, welcome. Second off, what the fuck are you doing starting on episode 25? It's fine. It's fine. I can practice non-judgment. I have very strong feelings about this. I'm celebrating that you're here. You can listen to this podcast in any order you choose. And I'm going to practice accepting that, that I don't have control over the order that people choose to listen to this podcast in. It's fine. Okay, (laughs) moving on. Uh, One of the things that I've been talking about in the last few episodes is that I believe I might have autism. I've talked about taking several online assessments and finding that I consistently scored way past the threshold score at which autism is considered. So I did a bit of research around whether it was worth to get diagnosed and then decided that I did want to get diagnosed, and then did a bunch of research on diagnosticians who have experience diagnosing autism in adults, and specifically adult women. And then I contacted several and heard back from two and chose to work with one. I talked a bit about that process in episode 23, actually. And this brings us up to this episode's recording, which was recorded on April 2nd, 2022. I'm recording the commentary on October 25th, 2022, so six and a half months later. At the start of the recording that I'm about to play for you, I'm doing one of the questionnaires that my diagnostician required in advance of our assessment appointment. The specific questionnaire I'm doing is the SRS2, the Social Responsiveness Scale, second edition. And I was having some feelings and some thoughts which we'll get into in a second. Some brief orientation before I play the recording for you. Most of the skills I reference in this episode are from the DBT manual by Marsha Linehan. DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy and is my therapy type of choice. The DBT manual is linked in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy a hard copy. Whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual or really anyone else's work other than my own, I turn on a bit of reverb so that I sound like I'm in the New York subway or more accurately at the New York subway bathroom. Okay, so that's about all the intro you need. Let's dive right on in to our recording. Take it away, past joy. I've been doing a lot of questionnaires and research around potentially being on the autism spectrum. And so I'm taking the SRS2 questionnaire, which is the Social Responsiveness Scale, second edition. Um, It's for adult self-reporting. And I am having emotions come up. Maybe just one. I'm having things come up. Let's see if we can identify them, shall we? This questionnaire has a scale of one, which is not true, two, sometimes true, three, often true, and four, almost always true. And there's questions like, I have trouble keeping up with the flow of normal conversation. I am awkward in turn-taking interactions with others. For example, I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. Oh, and here's another one. I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. It feels like somebody's pulling back the curtain and showing me the gross tonnage of computing that I'm doing in order to interact with other people. I kind of figured that was what was necessary to be a human, like that amount of computing, that amount of effort. And so I stopped paying attention to how much work it is for me to do that. When I left the company that I had co-founded a couple years back, I was putting together basically a how to replace joy document that had instructions on all the tasks that I had done and the things that I was responsible for. And this thing ended up being like, God, I don't know how many pages long, 90 maybe. At my previous job before that, I worked for a general contractor as the office manager. And when I put together my documentation of all of the things I was responsible for there, it was over 50 pages long. And I'm not really aware of that until I have to write it all down. Like there's a huge amount of things I just do automatically. And it doesn't occur to me as, 
oh yeah, this is a thing that I'm responsible for. This is a thing that is part of my job. It's kind of, yeah, it's automatic. In the same way that if you asked me what my skills are, I would not list tying shoes or brushing my teeth. <laughs> like, those things just kind of feel... They're not... Those things are automatic, but the job stuff, those... I don't know how to explain this. I'm experiencing, like, I think it's grief. Because I kind of just figured that's my life. It's something that's broken in me that other people have and I don't have. It's a lot to look at these scores in black and white and how often I'm scoring things as being really hard for me. It's like a big old spotlight showing how hard I work to appear normal and not incredibly awkward. I'm also seeing how I have selected for friends who talk a lot <laughs> um, because it means that I don't have to contribute as much to a conversation. And it also is having me be aware of how often that I need something to do with my hands. I need a task to do and how many of my friendships came about because there was a shared activity, something to do, something to occupy my hands, something that I could look at so I don't have to make eye contact. Oh, no. Like I can be over here looking at this other thing and I don't have to maintain as much eye contact. <sighs> and part of the problem... <laughs> is I don't know that any of my friends would say that I'm socially awkward because I am working really, 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 really hard. And I'm also pretty fast. Like I liken it to have a really fast processing chip in my laptop. Like I can figure out what I'm supposed to do pretty quickly to the point that most people won't pick up on the awkwardness that I'm experiencing. But it also means that it's exhausting. I remember seeing like a behind-the-scenes featurette or something about, I think it was like the first Transformer movie, and they showed the computers, all the towers of computing processing machines that were necessary to render a single frame in one of the Transformer movies, and how many hours it took for them to render that, and how cold that facility had to be to keep all those machines cooled down. It's so much work. Now, because there's all that computing power, it can happen quickly. And it's still a lot of computing power. And I was talking to four therapists ago, five therapists ago, maybe, about my experience of being, like I call it hyper-processing, meaning that I can pick things up really, really fast. I can learn. I can teach myself really, really fast. And I was comparing that to like being a processor in a computer. And my then therapist said, okay, great. Well, we know that for computers to run that fast, they need a really strong fan. They need, you know, a very cool environment so that they don't literally burn out. And I asked them, what's the equivalent? What's the analogous thing for me then? What's my really strong fan or my really cold environment? And they said that, ugh, it's self-care. Oh, how I hate that fucking, fucking, fucking... I really don't like self-care. <laughs> I really don't. Well, there's types of self-care that I like. Sitting alone in my room, doing embroidery while Netflix is playing in the background. That's self-care. Doing a puzzle while listening to a podcast. That's self-care. But there's other types of self-care that I really don't have a, a strong... It's typically interacting with other people. So articulating boundaries and actually asking for what I need. Having to say it. That feels scary, I think. I'm noticing fear come up in my body right now. So I'm going to be doing, I'm using right now mindfulness to emotions and mindfulness to current thoughts, like paying attention to what shows up in my body and paying attention to what my thoughts are. And I'm noticing fear come up at the idea of asking for what I need from other people. I'm noticing fear come up around setting boundaries with other people. Okay, so here's the thought. I'm having the thought, what happens when they tell me that shouldn't be a boundary that I need? Like it's not okay for me to have that boundary. It often feels like my boundaries are unreasonable. People respond to my boundaries as though they are unreasonable. That it's not fair. And so, sometimes they even say that, that it's not fair of me to, to have that boundary. It's not reasonable to have that boundary. It doesn't work for them that I have that boundary. It's not okay that I have that boundary. 
I need to just suck it up and deal. I'm remembering a conversation I had with a former coworker where they'd asked me to do something for them that was, it was their responsibility and they were asking me to do it because I would do it way faster than they would. And barring that, their other request was if I am not willing to do it for them, would I be willing to teach them how to do it? And I said, no. And they said, but this is something that's really important to our company. And if you don't do this, like our company is going to suffer. And don't you want our company to succeed? And I said, I do want our company to succeed. And that's not my responsibility. Like that task you're asking me to do is not my responsibility. And they said, they said that they knew it wasn't my responsibility and it needed to get done quickly. And I was going to be able to do it much faster than they could. And it was this just slog back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. I kept saying no, and they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and saying things like I wasn't a team player. I was behaving like I didn't want our company to succeed. I was harming them, my coworker, like hurting them because this was really stopping them from being able to do their work. And I don't remember how the rest of the conversation went. I do remember that I gave in eventually, though. And the problem is, uh, okay, here's the thought that's coming up. My coworker had said that I would be able to do it much faster than they would be able to do, and it needed to be done quickly, so please, could you do it? And the thought I had then, and I'm remembering it now, was, dude, I can do every single thing you do faster than you can do it. <laughs> that's hyperbole. And I can do most things that they could do faster than they could do it. Cause I'm really, really fast. Like I can get things done three times faster than other people can get them done. Even starting from zero, even starting from, I don't even know what this is. I have to do a bunch of research. I have to figure things out. I have to teach myself. I can still get all of that done faster because I'm really, really fast. And there's a question on one of these assessments that when I read it, it felt like, that thing is the entirety of my personality. And basically, I am just that personality trait dressed up in a trench coat. And that's who I am. <laughs> um, let's see if I can find it here. Ah, uh, yes, here we go. I find it difficult to explain to others things that I understand easily when they don't understand it the first time. Like, this is a problem. This is a repeated, constant problem. I can do things really quickly. And if something needs to be done fast, if there's a fast deadline, I will be asked to do that thing, even if it's not my responsibility, because I can get it done fast. And it's also a problem because other people compare their speed to my speed and they just keep going, well, Joy's just better at this. And I don't know that better is the right word. I'm faster. <laughs> I can get it done faster. I'm feeling, okay, we're going to try to figure out what emotion I'm feeling right now. So I'm going to be looking at emotion regulation handout six in the DBT manual, which lists emotions. So the big 10 are anger, disgust, envy, fear, happiness, jealousy, love, sadness, shame, and guilt handout six is 10 pages long, a page per each emotion. This is a simplified list of emotions, those 10 emotions I just named. And it's a great starting point for somebody like me who never learned how to identify or describe my emotions. So of these 10 emotions, I'm trying to narrow down what I'm feeling right now. It could be anger, could be disgust. It's not envy. It could be fear. It's not happiness. It's not jealousy. It's not love. It might be sadness. It's not shame and it's not guilt. It might actually be shame. Because saying no to things, setting boundaries and whatnot, I get so much pushback. Like I do worry about getting labeled as not a team player. I worry that, you know, I will be judged for that, punished for that. So here's some things. Let's talk about shame for a second. Have we ever talked about shame? I don't know that we have. Goodness. Burnout and shame. That was episode 13, and yeah, okay, so just episode 13. We're going to talk about it again. And what I'm, what I'm doing right now is trying to figure out what emotion I'm experiencing, because I can't tell. I just know that I feel a huge amount of tension in my body, and 
it is not an obvious emotion. I've become more facile, more skilled at identifying other emotions. Like, I'm pretty good at identifying when I'm feeling angry, but not always. I'm pretty good at identifying when I'm feeling fear. Sadness is harder for me. And those are kind of the big three that I experience a lot, that I experience in strong enough amounts that it actually, like, gets past my, my filter of like, it's fine, everything's fine, it's, everything's fine. I need to get to like 50 out of 100 or 60 out of 100 before I'm aware of what emotion I'm feeling in a lot of cases. So right now, I just know that I'm feeling very uncomfortable and have a lot of tension. And so I'm trying to reverse engineer what feeling I'm having. How am I doing that? This is messy for me. Like this is not a, a linear process. I'm trying to observe and describe my emotions. Observe and describe our mindfulness skills. And you can see more about that on mindfulness handout four, which talks about the what, like what we do when we're mindful. There's three big things. We observe, we describe, and we participate. So I'm going to be practicing observe and describe to start with, to try to figure out what emotion this is. And I started off, as you just heard, going over emotion regulation handout six, which lists the big 10 emotions. I think it might be shame. So before we get into the details of shame, I want to talk a little bit about the model for describing emotions. This is emotion regulation handout five. I do not like this version of this handout. It's more complicated than it needs to be. I like the one that I've linked in the description. It's another graphic. It's called the E-wheel, E for emotion. And also the majority of the things in the E-wheel start with a letter E. But this is kind of a simpler explanation. So one of two things will start the emotion wheel spinning. The wheel itself has three spokes, experience, expression, and echoes. So my experience is physical or body sensations and my urges to act. The expression is what I said or did. My facial expressions are my body language. So how I communicate what I'm feeling inside me to other people outside me. And then echoes are how my emotion influences my attention, mood, thinking, and actions as the day goes on. And echoes are protective in intention, like they're out there to protect me from having strong, uncomfortable emotions. So we've got our wheel, my experience, my internal experience, what it feels like in my body and what thoughts I'm having, things that other people can't necessarily see. We have my expression, what it looks like to somebody outside of me, and echoes, which are how that experience influences my mood and my behavior as the day goes on. So what gets this wheel spinning? What will start it? There's always something that starts it. Emotions don't arise out of nothing. We're not talking about spontaneous generation. There is always, always, always a cause. All behavior is caused. All emotions are caused even if I am not aware of what is causing it. My lack of awareness of a cause doesn't negate the fact that there is a cause. And sometimes the causes are things like new medication, vitamin deficiency, things that are things that literally I would have no way of knowing unless I went and got like a blood test. And it doesn't make those things any less real in terms of how they will start the emotion wheel spinning. So... There's always, always, always a cause, and it will be one of two things. An event, like the actual event, will trigger an emotion, a thing that happened, or what I think about the event, so my interpretations. So using an example that I've used before, like my breakup, the event was my partner said, I don't want to be in a relationship anymore. It's too hard. That is what he said. That's the event. And then I have the thought, oh my God, no one will ever love me. Oh my God, I can't trust my own judgment about how a relationship is going. Oh my God, I'll be alone forever. Oh my God, I am unlovable. Oh my God, all of these things, my mental illnesses, my baggage make me unlovable. So those are all my interpretations. Those are all the thoughts that I had. And none of those things were the things that actually happened. What happened was my partner said, I don't want to be in a relationship anymore. It's too hard. So separating out the event from the interpretation is absolutely a thousand percent, a gazillion percent 
necessary and important. And it takes a lot of practice. Like when I started this work, I could not separate out the event from the interpretation. They were like two cars that crashed into each other going 90 miles an hour, head-on collision. And those metals, those cars now have fused together. They are now the same vehicle. It is now one big mangled vehicle. And they didn't start out that way. Like those used to be two separate cars. So being able to identify my interpretation as distinct from the event is like putting a crowbar or a pry bar in between those two cars and separating them. I mean, like, fuck, I used to, I used to date people who didn't have the skill of validation, didn't have the skill of listening, prioritized their wants and needs over considering mine. Like, I don't expect anyone to prioritize me over themselves. It would be nice, though, to have somebody consider me <laughs> in their priorities. And I had it that these people were assholes. Like, that's who they are fundamentally. Like, they came out of the womb that way. And that's a judgment. That's an interpretation. Asshole is not a thing. Like, what's a take a picture of assholery. Like, what's asshole behavior? I know that the Reddit subthread, Am I the Asshole, does a pretty good job of <laughs> taking screenshots of assholery. But really, like, that's a judgment, right? And to do a quick aside to judgments... So the mindfulness handout four listed the what I do when I'm being mindful. I observe, I describe, and participate. The how I do those things is mindfulness handout five. The list is non-judgmentally, one mindfully, and effectively. So I observe non-judgmentally. I observe one mindfully, and I observe effectively when I'm being mindful. I describe non-judgmentally, I describe one mindfully, and I describe effectively when I'm being mindful. And I participate. I participate non-judgmentally, I participate one mindfully, and I participate effectively. So judgments, judgments are things like good or bad, should or shouldn't, fair or unfair, right or wrong, black or white, always, never, all or nothing, name calling, asshole right there. And there's three main things that I judge. I judge myself, I judge others, and I judge reality. My first DBT instructor defined judgments as aggressive certainty. Like, if what happened is jello, then judgments are granite, <laughs> you know? Like, judgments are saying, no, no, no. Here is my take on this event, and my take is absolute and inviolable and unimpeachable and accurate. And the problem with judgments is they're not based on fact. And the way we know it's not based on fact is because if these past partners of mine were, if like there was a fact of asshole and they were that fact, then everybody would have the same experience of them. In the same way that like, if my hair is blonde, everybody who looks at me is gonna see blonde hair because that's a fact, not an interpretation. Yeah, the problem with judgments is that they're not based on fact. They're immutable. So once I have a judgment about a thing, it's not budging. It's carved in stone. And judgments also prevent understanding of ourselves, of others, and of reality. If I'm so busy judging a thing and saying it should be a different way, I will not be spending any energy trying to understand why that thing is that way. I mean, I don't know if I've told this story from start to end. Um because I keep giving the like the Cliff's Notes version of it. Um, I moved back in with my parents after grad school 11 years ago. And my mom has been walking in to my room without knocking or knocking and then not waiting for me to say come in for 11 years. Now I did move out and I was living with my former partner for a couple years. So we'll say nine years. It's been nine years that my mom has been doing this and it continued when I moved back home after the breakup. And I was judging her this entire time. Like, what's your deal? Why can't you listen to me? Why can't you remember to not do this? Like, what is the problem? You should be able to hear what I'm saying, hear my request, and change your behavior accordingly. Should, should, should. And it wasn't until, and this literally happened a couple months ago, it wasn't until I asked the question, what would I do if I accepted that my mom cannot stop herself from coming in my room? It's not future-based. Like, it wasn't she will never stop coming in. This will be how it goes for forever. It wasn't that. It's like, what, what would I do if I accept that this is how it's gone in the past and this is how it's currently going 
And then and only then did I get a lock on my door. But for the 11 years prior to that, I judged her and was angry at her and annoyed and frustrated and combative and yes, very, very, very judgmental about it. And it makes sense that I would be judgmental. We're going to do some self-validation here for a second. It makes sense that I would be judgmental because I didn't have the skill of setting boundaries effectively. Oh, rather, I could identify my boundary, which is don't come in. I could communicate it, which is telling my mom not to come in. I didn't have the skill of enforcing a boundary. I wasn't even aware that that third thing, enforcing, was a part of setting boundaries. I thought all I needed to do was observe that that was my boundary, like identify it, and then tell somebody. And it turns out that's not all that is necessary. So it was a skills gap and... Here's another, here's another gap. It's really important to me that people hear me and honor my boundaries. And so I was putting all my energy into basically forcing this outcome with my mom. Like, you have to hear me. You have to respect my boundaries. Instead of like looking where I could be responsible for changing my behavior to enforce my boundary. Because I can't stop anybody else's behaviors. Like, I can't. I don't have control over other people's bodies, nor should I. But because I was spending all this time like focusing on, mom, you need to change. Mom, you need to do this. I was not giving any thought to what I needed to do in order to enforce my boundary. So that was a lovely tangent of like an example of what a judgment does because it prevented me from understanding why I had been ineffective up to that point and why my mom had been ineffective up to that point. It was just like, well, she should hear me. She should understand me. She should listen. She should change her behavior. So yes, judgments prevent understanding of ourselves and of others. Back to the e-wheel. An event happens, and that can get the wheel started all by itself. It can have me start having experiences, expressions, and echoes. Similar to how, like, if somebody jumps out at me from behind a blind corner and scares me, like, I don't need interpretations for my body to react, right? I will jump, I might shriek, my heart rate will go up. Like I'm experiencing fear, really intense fear. And there weren't any interpretations there. It was just, oh, that thing itself elicited that emotion. And then there's our interpretations. Our interpretations of an event can elicit emotions. So let's talk about shame. What are the prompting events for shame? And what are interpretations of events that prompt shame? Again, this is emotion regulation handout six. Some synonyms for shame are contrition, culpability, discomposure, a word I have never used in my life, embarrassment, humiliation, mortification, self-consciousness, shyness. Shame is a fear of rejection and is distinct from guilt because guilt is a fear of violating my own values. Where this all started was talking about the autism questionnaires. And I was having, I still am, having very strong feelings in my body. And I thought, let's see if it's shame. So here we are seeing if it's shame. Prompting events for feeling shame include being rejected by people you care about, having others find out that you have done something wrong, doing or feeling or thinking something that people you admire believe is wrong or immoral, comparing some aspect of yourself or your behavior to a standard and feeling as if you do not live up to that standard, (sighs) being betrayed by a person you love, being laughed at or made fun of, being criticized in public or in front of someone else, remembering public criticism, others attacking your integrity, being reminded of something wrong, immoral, or shameful you did in the past, being rejected or criticized for something you expected praise for, having emotions or experiences that have been invalidated. Oh no. Exposure of a very private aspect of yourself or your life, exposure of a physical characteristic you dislike, Failing at something you feel you are or should be competent to do. Okay, I'm pretty sure the experience I'm having right now is shame. (laughs) So just those prompting events, like the ones that stand out to me are comparing some aspect of yourself or your behavior to a standard and feeling as if you do not live up to that standard. That's my experience of taking these fucking quizzes. Like I can tell from the question, like what normal is supposed to be. And I'm aware, like, some questions it doesn't bother me that I'm abnormal, and other ones I'm like, 
oh God, like I have trouble keeping up with the flow of normal conversation. I am awkward in turn-taking interactions with others. Like I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. I do not recognize when others are trying to take advantage of me. I have a lot of shame, like a huge amount of shame. I think the thing that clinches it for me and like this is absolutely shame is that I don't wanna tell my closest friends. I'm worried what they will think if they know what my internal experience is when we're having conversations. Like I'm really fucking worried about that. So we're gonna do opposite action to shame at the end of this. Let's see what other prompting events for shame that I, <laughs> that I uh, identified with. Um, having emotions or experiences that have been invalidated. Fucking, 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 fuck. Okay, we're gonna sit with this for a second. I'm gonna do some breathing here for a minute. And I'm also doing willing hands. Willing hands is a distress tolerance technique. It basically forces me to be mindful to my body. And that is distress tolerance handout 14. I have a picture of it on my Instagram account. Me doing willing hands is basically like me holding plates of food <laughs> in each hand and opening up my, my shoulders. <sighs> having emotions and experiences that have been invalidated. I really do feel like I'm just a collection of trauma responses dressed up in a trench coat and parading around like a human. Because uh, I have concerns. Like, I want to tell my parents about this, and they don't, have, they don't really have the skill of validation. And I've been watching myself be like, you can't tell them until you have proof, i.e. until you have a diagnosis because that will be the thing that will prevent them from invalidating me. <laughs> fucking, 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 oh. All of this feels gross, I don't like it. Oh. Like I'm increasingly aware at what I do to avoid invalidation. The amount of documentation I do, the amount of research that I do, how I will prepare an argument in advance to convince people that this is my experience. Like I took, I think, eight or nine questionnaires online and then graphed all of the results of those in Excel. Those graphs include the threshold level, my score, like the average scores for neurotypical people, the average scores for folks who are on the spectrum. Like it's all graphed. You can see all of it. And I put it in a document and I prepared all of that so that I could convince my primary care provider to give me a referral. Turns out I don't need a referral. Turns out they didn't need convincing to give me one. They gave me one anyway and didn't need to be convinced. <laughs> like I didn't even have to share with them this PDF that I had made. It was a PowerPoint, all these slides. I explain what each test tests for and then what the thresholds are and the number of questions and like the statistical rigor, blah, 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 blah. Because I'm anticipating having to prove myself because I have had a lifetime of telling people this is my experience and them not listening to me or not believing me. Okay, I'm noticing I'm feeling very tense. I'm like clenching my fists right now. I've stopped doing willing hands and I'm not even aware of when I stopped doing that. And now I'm just like clenching my fists. <sighs> so other prompting events that I particularly identify with, exposure of a very private aspect of yourself or your life, even sharing on this podcast that I might be on the spectrum. I haven't even gotten tested yet. It'll be a month before I actually get my assessment. I am very uncomfortable. Like I've been working on this, these assessments for like a month and a half, maybe two months, like doing research and trying to understand my own behavior and what is normal, what is my experience, all of that stuff. And I haven't wanted to talk about it on the podcast. I'm doing opposite action to shame right now. Fuck, 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 fuck. Okay, we'll get into opposite action momentarily, but for now, we're just gonna stay here. I didn't want to tell anybody outside of like my very closed circle, my sisters and my three closest friends who are all neurodivergent themselves. <laughs> So I didn't want to share it on the podcast. And the concerns I had were like, don't share it until you're certain. 
Like I shouldn't share it unless I've gotten a diagnosis. Like it's not okay for me to do that. I have the concern that I actually don't know what my concerns were. I'm paying attention to my thoughts right now and trying to identify them. Oh no. Okay, here's a thought. If I tell people on the podcast that I think I'm on the spectrum and then I get results that show that I am not, and let's assume I get multiple, you know, opinions about it. Like I go to multiple diagnosticians. If the first person says you don't have it, let's assume that I would try a couple other people. Anyhow, I have the concern that if I say it before I'm diagnosed and then it turns out I don't have it, that dear listeners will think I'm lying, will think that I make things up, will think that I (laughs) am hysterical, that I fly off the handle, that I'm a hypochondriac of like, oh yes, let's, let's pathologize the human experience. And that actually was one of my friend's reactions to this. I mentioned to them, hey, I've taken a couple quizzes and the results of those quizzes show that I may be on the spectrum. And they were like, you should never self-diagnose. Like that was their first reaction because you read a description of like narcissist personality disorder, disassociative identity disorder, like all of these things. You're like, oh my God, I must have that thing. No, that's not what I'm doing here. And I have that concern that other people will react that way, that people will assume that I'm making this up, that I'm trying to fit myself into a diagnosis that isn't accurate. So I remember when like the Harvey Weinstein story broke in October of 2017. And for a year, there was just this onslaught of people coming forward and sharing their experiences of being assaulted or harassed or abused by powerful, mostly straight cis white men. And there were a lot of people in the news who were like, oh, you know, they're, they're making this up to get attention. Like that there's some sort of social standing that you gain by being a victim of sexual assault. And I'm noticing myself have the concern that I will be judged for thinking I'm on the spectrum, that people will think I'm making it up to get attention. (sighs) I'm like, what attention, man? (laughs) Certainly, if I do get attention, it's not good attention. Same with being a victim of sexual assault, which I am multiple times over. And the attention you get from that, it's not good attention. doesn't feel good. But yeah, I noticed myself having that concern, having that thought, like, they'll think you're trying to, they being you, my listeners, will think that I'm trying to get attention or look cooler than I am, <laughs> look more interesting than I am, kind of like perform oppression, maybe. And then some of the other prompting events for feeling shame, uh, failing at something you feel you are or should be competent to do. Definitely that one, because a lot of these questionnaire questions are like, I'm awkward in turn taking interactions with others. And that word awkward implies that there are people who are more comfortable with it, more facile at communicating with others. And I am not that. I struggle with that. And I also struggle at having people see it because I mask so fucking effectively. And it sucks. Like, it's fucking exhausting. I'm aware that there are people around whom I do not mask. I'm also aware of how much time I spend alone so that I don't have to mask. Yeah, all of these things are characteristics that I think I should be good at. Like, as a, as a human being, it's important to be able to know how to do this. And so I'm having a lot of shame come up. Um, some interpretations of events that prompt feelings of shame include... Believing that others will reject you or have rejected you. So just to clarify, this is not actually being rejected. That would be the event. But an interpretation is believing that others will reject me or have rejected me. That may not actually be in line with reality. And if I have the thought that I am being rejected, that will trigger shame. Judging yourself to be inferior, not good enough, not as good as others. Self-invalidation will trigger shame. Delightful. Comparing yourself to others and thinking that you are a, quote, loser. Believing yourself unlovable. 
thinking that you are bad, immoral, or wrong, thinking that you are defective, (laughs) thinking that you are a bad person or a failure, believing your body or a body part is too big, too small, or ugly, thinking that you have not lived up to others' expectations of you, thinking that your behavior, thoughts, or feelings are silly or stupid. Seriously, this page, I could put a trench coat on this page and just be like, here, this is me. This is joy, if you want to know what joy is. My name, not the emotion. So certainly believing that others will reject you or have rejected you. Yep, yep, I got that. Like, I have that thought about setting boundaries. I have that thought about sharing that I may be on the spectrum. Like, I'm expecting pushback and I'm expecting criticism. Judging yourself to be inferior, not good enough, not as good as others. And self-invalidation. Yep, 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 yep. Fucking all over the place, guys everywhere. Like I feel embarrassed to admit that I had to go to DBT skills group as an adult. I was, I think 33. Yes, I was 33 when I started going to this group. And this is where I learned how to identify my emotions because I didn't have access to that beforehand. I didn't have the skill of knowing what was going on. People would ask me, are you okay? And I would say I'm fine because I was not aware that I wasn't okay. And that's a fairly ubiquitous experience. The couple that I hang out with and their toddler, the husband of that couple shared with me something the other day that I had forgotten, that when we first met and started hanging out, I would actively avoid answering the question of how I'm feeling or how I'm doing. I would pivot really super hard into asking them really deep questions about their experience. (laughs) And this comes up all over the place. I've gone on dates with people where they will want a second date, but I don't because they felt really heard. They felt like I was really interested in them because I wouldn't answer questions about myself. I kept pivoting, pivot, 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 focus it on them because I didn't know how to explain myself. I didn't know how to explain my experience. I didn't know how to explain my life really. And so these guys would leave going, oh my God, she's so into me. She was super interested. She kept asking me these really intense, like intimate questions. And I'm like, no, dude, that's a defense mechanism. (laughs) Like, I'm not doing that because I like you. I'm doing that because I'm really, I don't want to have awkward pauses. Like awkward pauses would be my hell. I try to avoid them at all costs, which means I ask a ton of questions and I have to dig because the question, what do you do for a living? Will only get me so far. Like it only occupy that much time. So I have to start asking, what do you like about your job? What do you dislike about your job? How did you get into your job? What lights you up about it? What do you want to do for your future? Like, is this job what you want to do as a career? All of these questions, totally a defense mechanism. So yes, other interpretations that prompt feelings of shame, comparing yourself to others and thinking that you're a loser. Yep. Like all of these questionnaires, it's like, do you do this worse than other people do this? (laughs) Like they actually say that, like compared to other people, do you have this experience? Like, I am able to communicate my feelings to others. I have sensory interests that others find unusual. (laughs) I am overly sensitive to certain sounds, textures, or smells. People think I'm interested in too few topics or that I get too carried away with those topics. I have difficulty relating to adults outside my family. My behavior is socially awkward, even when I'm trying to be polite. Others feel I have overly serious facial expressions. I have difficulty answering questions directly and end up talking around the subject. Yeah, like all of those, like awkward is a judgment. Unusual is a judgment. Um, A lot of these questions compare me or whoever's taking the questionnaire to other people. And so... Comparing yourself to others and thinking that you're a loser. That's an interpretation. Now, none of those comparisons imply I'm bad because I can't do these things. Like I'm a bad human or I'm a bad friend or whatever. And I'm having those thoughts. (laughs) So I am interpreting those questions in a way that is prompting shame. Thinking that you are bad, immoral, or wrong. Thinking you're defective. (laughs) Thinking you're a bad person or a failure. (sighs) thinking that you have not lived up to others' expectations of you. Oh yeah, totally. I'm watching myself feel so uncomfortable 
at the possibility of sharing how unnatural and how, how much effort it takes for me to maintain conversations, I'm worried about sharing that with people. And what's interesting is like, I actually don't want accommodations from them. Like I don't want people to be like, oh, well then we won't invite you to places or we won't invite you to come over and hang out just one-on-one. I'm like, I don't want that because I still want to hang out. I still want to interact. I still want to spend time with people. And it would be nice if they knew that it took something for me to do that. I don't want them to be treating me with kit gloves, certainly. And I guess the underlying desire is to have my friends understand my experience and what life is like for me. And I'm noticing myself have the concern that they will judge me for it. These are, my friends are not judgmental. I have this nice little tiny group. Everybody's separate. No one knows each other. (laughs) But I have this nice little collection of like four people all over the country who clearly like they accept me for who I am, which is why these relationships have lasted as long as they have. And I'm just noticing that I have the concern that they'll be like, oh my God, finally the thing that has me not want to be friends with Joy anymore because she's just too much. So I'm noticing those interpretations. All right, moving on on shame to biological changes and experiences of shame. Pain in the pit of the stomach. Oh my God. I have not spent a lot of time identifying shame because I've been feeling like sick to my stomach basically since I started recording. I thought it was disgust. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because the biological changes and experiences of disgust also on emotion regulation handout six includes feelings of nausea or sick feeling. And none of the prompting events for feeling disgust had happened. Like there's no event that happened that would have triggered disgust. And there's no interpretations that I was having that would have triggered disgust. So shame causes a pit in the stomach. This is interesting. I wonder if I've been mislabeling that. Okay, a sense of dread. Yep, wanting to shrink down and or disappear. (sighs) Wanting to hide or cover your face and body. This is so interesting. This is so interesting because (laughs) I thought it was discussed. Like when I started this podcast, when I started recording, I thought it was discussed, even though there weren't any interpretations or events that would have triggered disgust. And I also felt afraid. I'm like, what are you afraid of, Joy? Like there weren't interpretations or triggering events for fear that were going on. So literally I'm reverse engineering my emotions right now because I was experiencing dread and I was experiencing pain. Like like my stomach is very tense right now. And I thought, okay, it's either disgust or fear. Maybe it's both disgust and fear. Or it could just be shame. (laughs) Not just as in it's insignificant, but it could only be shame because it also causes a sense of dread. Yep, like an impending doom. Fucking hell, man. I really get annoyed when this shit works. It really annoys me. Um, Okay, expressions and actions of shame, which also include urges. We've got hiding behavior or a characteristic from other people. Avoiding the person you have harmed, if you've harmed someone. Avoiding persons who have criticized you. Avoiding yourself, distracting or ignoring. Withdrawing, covering the face, bowing your head, groveling, appeasing, saying you're sorry over and over, like if you've wronged somebody, looking down and away from others, sinking back, slumped and rigid posture, halting speech, lowered volume while talking. Yeah, so I'm noticing I'm wanting to hide specific things, not universally wanting to hide, but like, so I've shared with my close little circle that I've taken these quizzes and here are my results and stuff, and that I'm actively seeking a diagnosis. And that was fine. Like I didn't have a huge amount of shame sharing that. I had a little bit, like I had the thought that they would think I was performing or like putting on airs, um, (laughs) like trying to be more interesting or something, or that I was trying to not be accountable for my behavior. Kind of be like, well, don't get mad at me for doing that. I can't help it because I'm on the spectrum, you know? Like I was worried they would think that I would use this as a way to avoid accountability for how I impact other people. Fuck, I have that concern myself. (laughs) Um, So that was the kind of the, the like, the little amount of shame that I experienced at the beginning of sharing this. And today my shame has increased a lot because of specifically those two things, those two questions. 
I have trouble keeping up with the flow of normal conversation, and I am awkward in turn-taking interactions with others. Like I have a hard time keeping up with the give and take of a conversation. I really do have a hard time with that. If you want to bypass my hard time, like my dad did a lovely thing the other day. We were having visitors over at the house and I hadn't met one of them. And dad was kind of, he was introducing me to these new people. And then by way of being like, here's Joy. Let me tell you something interesting about Joy. And he mentioned my notebooks from high school, college, and graduate school. And he like bypassed all my social awkwardness because I could talk about my notebooks for forever and I will take pictures or video of it and I will include them on my Instagram if you want to take a look at these. These are my pieces of art. These are probably the things that I have done that I am the most proud of. Uh, if there's a fire, I will grab my laptop and my external hard drive and as many of those notebooks as I can. You know what? It might be worth it to like scan them and actually like get them digitalized so that I have them for safekeeping. <laughs> but anyway, the awkwardness that I was feeling, because I had been in my room all day, didn't want to come out and interact with them. And finally, I stuck my head out <laughs> because they bribed me with the promise of margaritas. So I stuck my head out and instantly was like, oh, Oh, great. Let me go get a notebook. Let me show you. Let me show you my tabs and all my cross-references and my phylogeny tree and all of my like Greek and Latin root glossary and like all of the different color coding that I do and all of this stuff. <sighs> and I'm aware most people don't fucking care. <laughs> like they don't want to hear it, but it kind of bypassed my awkwardness. And instead I went like off and was like, let me talk at you for the next 20 minutes. And I had to rein myself in because I'm aware that most people don't care. Yeah. We're back at expressions and actions of shame. Um, I certainly have the internal experience of wanting to shrink down or disappear, wanting to hide. I don't remember where I'd left off. Like the big things that, that strike me for the experiences and actions of shame, the urges, like what it looks like to somebody on the outside of me. I certainly withdraw a lot. I avoid myself. <laughs> I avoid other people. Um, and finally, after effects of shame, also echoes. Avoiding thinking about your transgression, shutting down, blocking all emotions. Engaging in distracting or impulsive behaviors to divert your mind or attention. High amount of self-focus, preoccupation with yourself. Depersonalization, dissociative experiences, numbness or shock. Attacking or blaming others. Conflicts with other people isolation or feeling alienated, impairment in problem-solving ability. So almost all of these are things that I've been experiencing over the last couple weeks, last couple months, as I've been digging into this stuff. Like I go back and forth between being like, yes, this explains everything about me, all the way down to, you're making the whole thing up, Joy. You're just trying to get attention. You're just trying to be cool. You're trying to play the oppression Olympics. Yeah, like I experienced a lot of doubt that this is my experience. <laughs> I have gone back and forth between isolating and feeling really, really alone to desperately needing somebody to hear me and to validate it. I have been doing a lot of distract. <laughs> like I go back and forth between like doing these quizzes and graphing everything and like really immersing myself into it and then avoiding it completely. So I'm all over the place is what I'm saying. <laughs> so that is my experience of shame. I've diagnosed it. I've put a name to it. That's splendid. This is very long. So I'm going to take a break here and then we're going to do a part two, which will be me doing opposite action to shame. And welcome back to the future. I am not going to do a big outro because I kind of left you on a cliffhanger and there's part two coming right away. But to do kind of a quick recap and summarize what you just heard, at the start of the recording, I was having some very strong feelings come up in response to the autism assessment questionnaire that I was taking. 
And as is often the case for me, I was unclear as to which emotion I was feeling. I could tell that I was experiencing distress, but couldn't tell you what emotion it was or what thoughts were causing that distress. I have since learned that it is very likely that I have alexithymia or alexithemia or however it's pronounced, which is a difficulty in identifying and describing emotions and feelings and difficulty in distinguishing among the accompanying body sensations. Now, alexithymia is not the same as autism. It's not a given that if you have one, you have the other. And there is a lot of overlap. Research shows that 40 to 65 or even as high as 70% of folks with autism also have alexithymia or alexithemia, whatever, compared to about 5 to 13% of the neurotypical population, so people who don't have autism. So it's possible to have alexithymia without having autism, and there's a lot of folks with autism who have alexithymia. More info on this is linked in the description if you would like to learn more. So given that it's very likely that I have alexithymia, of course I would gravitate very heavily towards DBT, which has a fucking manual. And there's a page for every main emotion telling me exactly how it feels in my body and the sorts of thoughts that come with it and what it looks like on the outside. It's such a fucking lifeboat for someone with a brain like mine. So I'm very grateful to have this resource. Alrighty, so I'm going to wrap it up here and uh, tell you to go listen to episode 26, which is part two of this very special episode about autism and shame. And I'm going to do my standard ending, which is just me ending super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.